0: If you could choose, would you rather be a president or a prophet? A commander in chief or a teacher come from God? A compeller or a converter? Would you rather work from the outside in and have your orders followed? Or work from the inside out and have people become agents unto themselves? Would you rather have people do what needs to be done or become who they need to be? My name is Jared Halverson. And these are all questions we'll be discussing today as we study Mosiah chapter 29 through Alma chapter 4 in this week's Come Follow Me. Welcome back to another round of Unshaken. I'm so glad you would join me. Back in 2012 I was living in Nashville, Tennessee, working on a degree at the Vanderbilt Divinity School as a token Latter-day Saint surrounded by evangelical Christians for the most part. What seemed to be on everybody's mind at the time was the presidential campaign and Mitt Romney was running for president on the Republican ticket. All my friends and fellow students at Divinity School assumed that I'd vote for Mitt Romney. Not because they knew my political leanings, but because they knew my religious identity. Republican or Democrat, they figured I'd vote Mormon. When the results finally came in and Mitt Romney lost, my friends automatically assumed that this was a blow to Mormonism. They came to me the next week and were like, are, are you okay? Your guy, your guy lost. And I laughed and I said, you know, the last time Latter-day Saint ran for president, at the end of it, they killed him. This time we only lost. We're making progress. They laughed at that, not knowing that Joseph Smith had run for president back in 1844. And why had he done that? Here was a chance for a prophet to be a president. Not that there was any real chance at it at all. But it's an interesting question to ask. Which hat brings with it more power? Where can you do the greater good? You think back to Ezra Taft Benson, who at the same time was wearing one hat, that of an apostle of Jesus Christ, and another hat, that of Secretary of Agriculture for President Dwight D. Eisenhower. When President Eisenhower said, I need Ezra Taft Benson on my cabinet, Elder Benson at the time had to go back to President David O. McKay and ask, is this something I'm allowed to do? President McKay wisely said, yes, go to Washington. I think there's a place of influence that you can hold there. And we'll keep the home fires burning here in Salt Lake City. But for Elder Benson to try to do both simultaneously must have been an interesting experience for him. In fact, he took a lot of flack for some of the positions he took politically. And at one point he even said to Dwight D. Eisenhower, hey, if I'm bringing down your administration, if it looks like you might not be reelected because of my positions on things, feel free to get rid of me. I like my other day job. I'm happy to go back to Salt Lake and continue serving in my church. And yet of all the cabinet secretaries that Eisenhower had in his eight years in the White House, Ezra Taft Benson was the only one he kept the entire time. He basically said to Ezra Taft Benson, if you go, I go. I need you. Well, the Lord needed him too. So there's this tension between church and state. There's sometimes contradictory demands. Rendering unto Caesar what belongs to Caesar and rendering unto God what belongs to God. Ezra Taft Benson ended up doing both for a time. Others have had to choose which of these two masters will we end up serving. Ideally, their commands don't have to be contradictory. However, our time constraints often force us to place our priorities in one camp or the other. A much younger Neelay Maxwell was focused on political science and had aspirations for government. And yet, when it seemed like a position in the US Senate was almost guaranteed, he opted for education instead. And from education to church education, eventually becoming an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he never looked back. In 1984, when Dallin H. Oaks was called to the Quorum of the Twelve, he had been on people's short lists as a Supreme Court Justice. He'd already been on the Utah State Supreme Court, but this is the United States Supreme Court, and his name kept being brought up. In fact, when he was called to the Quorum of the Twelve, a beat reporter for the U.S. Supreme Court had to ask him, does this mean you're out of the running for any kind of consideration for the Supreme Court? And Elder Oaks said, yes, that's exactly what this means. But can you imagine, that was 84. Elder Oaks would still be on the US Supreme Court. Can you imagine the influence he would have in US politics from that incredible position on the bench? In fact, perhaps sensing these kinds of aspirations among church members, when, he, when Elder Oaks was called, President Hinckley even called it out. He basically said, some of you may be wondering, why would we call someone who could be having such a profound influence in the centers of government? He was saying the same thing about President Nelson, by the way, with his work in the realm of medicine. And President Hinckley's response, why did we call them? We didn't. The Lord did. And that might tell us something about where the Lord needs certain servants. In Mosiah chapter 29, King Mosiah the has an interesting dilemma that he's going to need to work through. You see, his people would have naturally assumed that the kingship, the crown, would have passed from him to one of his sons. This is the way it had gone for generations among this mixed multitude of Nephites and Mulekites, at least three generations with Mosiah the King Benjamin, and Mosiah the And so now we pass it on to the next one, right? Wrong. By the time Mosiah 28 begins, his four sons, Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni, have all said, we're not interested in a political kingdom. We're interested in building a spiritual one. So rather than rule the Nephites, may we serve the Lamanites? Can we trade kingship for discipleship and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ to people who desperately need it? They truly felt compelled to render unto God what belonged to God and not to worry about Caesar at all. In fact, they don't even seem to be present anywhere in Mosiah chapter 29 physically. They've already left and kind of, dad, it's all you. Good luck with whatever you're gonna do with the whole kingship thing. You see, back in 28, verse 10, they're asking for permission to leave. And here King Mosiah realizes, I've got no one to confer the kingdom upon, for there was not any of his sons who would accept of the kingdom. Kind of going down the list and no, 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 nobody wants to do this. They've got a different kind of kingdom to build. So chapter 29 begins with King Mosiah in this dilemma. You can tell he's already starting to lean in a more democratic direction because of what the way he poses the question 29 1 mosiah sent throughout all the land among all the people desiring to know their will concerning who should be their king now i imagine this would have been odd to them if you remember back at the beginning of the book of mosiah king benjamin brings his family and says specifically to mosiah You're the one that I'm going to pass the kingdom to. There didn't seem to be much choice in the matter, whether that choice belonged to Mosiah himself or to the people. Benjamin was king and he was deciding Mosiah, his son, was going to be next to reign. Here, this same Mosiah is turning it back to the people. Who do you want to rule over you? In verse 2, the voice of the people returns and says, Aaron, we're desirous that Aaron, thy son, should be our king and our ruler. It's actually a little tricky to understand the order of age among the sons of Mosiah. We usually say, Ammon, Aaron, Omner, Himni, assuming that Ammon is the oldest one. And yet here, it seems that they're requesting Aaron. So perhaps Aaron was the oldest. Either way, Aaron's not around to accept this opportunity. Verse 3, he'd already gone up to the land of Nephi, so the king could not confer the kingdom upon him. Not that he could have, even if Aaron had stuck around, because Aaron wouldn't take upon him the kingdom. Neither were any of the sons of Mosiah willing to take upon them the kingdom. So in verse 4, Mosiah sends again among the people saying, okay, that's not going to happen. What's our next best bet? You know, I assume that Mosiah could have just waited. He probably didn't know how long this mission would last. He probably didn't assume it would be the 14 years it ended up being. But isn't there some possibility of him thinking, well, right now they want to go build the kingdom. Great, go serve your mission. Come back. This will be the next mission after that to lead this people. Especially in Nephite society, it was not impossible to wear both a political and a spiritual hat at the same time. Mosiah had done it, King Benjamin done it, and so on. After all, we learned back in chapter 28, when he prayed about letting his sons go on this dangerous mission, that number one, they would survive it, so the boys will come home eventually. And number two, they're going to remain faithful all of their lives. He basically knew that their calling and election was made sure. Sounds like a pretty good king to me. So again, it seems that King Mosiah is already leaning in this democratic direction. He had followed the example of his father in terms of servant leadership. Back in last week's chapters, he had talked about making sure there was an equality among all men. Maybe there's even a recognition about relative numbers among his society. That as a Nephite, in a society where Nephites were outnumbered by Mulekites, perhaps this is a chance to really allow majority to rule in terms of deciding who would lead them. Whatever his specific intentions were, I think it's an interesting parallel between what's happening here and what's happening in the New Testament with Jesus Christ. Eventually he would be king of kings. But there was even a moment, shortly after multiplying the loaves and the fishes, where it says that he perceived that the people would come and force him to become king. In John 6:15, it says, when Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, I mean, who wouldn't want him to lead them? He can multiply loaves and fishes. This guy can do anything. A chicken in every pot, right? Isn't that the stereotypical political promise? And yet what does Jesus do? He climbs a mountain to get away from them. And then at night, he ends up walking on water. I'll do anything to avoid this kind of political kingship, this military messiah that they were assuming would come. He'd already denied Lucifer when he offered Jesus the kingdoms of this world. And so denying it again when the people were about to force it upon him? No, my kingdom is not of this world. And it's that kingdom that I am trying to establish. The day will come when the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Can you hear the tabernacle choir warming up with Handel's Messiah? But in the meantime, I'm not going to be the king you intend me to be forcing the question back on them. And that's the great message of John chapter 6, this incredible bread of life discourse. Will you allow me to rule over you my way? Will you be submissive subjects when the king that you're getting is not the king that you expect? Well, in a way, these are questions that King Mosiah wants his people to grapple with. How will you be led? And to what degree will you lead yourselves? That's a huge issue coming up in Mosiah chapter 29. From verse 5 through verse 36, this is a long proclamation to the people. We see King Mosiah's message, and there are some profound principles here that I think are worth understanding. His message begins in verse 5, Behold, O ye my people, or my brethren, for I esteem you as such. Two chapters before, in Mosiah 27, verses 3 through 5, Mosiah had already emphasized that there should be an equality among all men that there should not be any pride nor haughtiness, that every man should esteem his neighbor as himself, and that every leader, including religious ones, should labor with their own hands for their support. Mosiah himself lived that way, just like his father Benjamin had before. And so to see the Nephite nation, not as my subjects, not even as my people, but as my brethren, and to esteem them that way, that's true servant leadership. That's true equality between the shepherd and the sheep. His first desire for them in verse five is that they should consider the cause which they were called to consider. To consider the cause. Early America had the highest literacy rates and education rates of anywhere in the world. And one of the reasons why is because this democratic experiment, and that's what it was. The founding fathers were trying something revolutionary and that wasn't just the war. The real revolution john adams talks about this the real revolution was not what was taking place on the battlefields but what was taking place in the minds and hearts of the population can we really govern ourselves is there an equality of all men yeah thomas jefferson said that 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 was a self-evident truth but it was far from self-evident for the people that were trying this experiment upon themselves Even by the 1830s, when the church is organized, there are still European travelers coming to the United States to kind of check it out, really curious, is this experiment working at all? Well, everyone felt that an informed electorate was key for self-governance, that democracy would not function without high education and high literacy rates, that people had to be able to consider the cause that they were being called upon to consider. And even though literacy and education are still high in America today, I do wonder, do we consider the causes that are placed before us? Or do we just kind of hire someone else to do our homework? With voter turnout as low as it tends to be, the fact that the first presidency feels almost compelled to remind us every election cycle via a letter to be read over the pulpit in sacrament meeting, that we need to seek wise leaders, that we need to be engaged in the civic process, We need to consider the causes, for there are many, that are being deliberated in the halls of government. Since America tried the experiment and proved it could be successful, democracy has become basically the default form of government around the world, and that's a good thing. But I sometimes wonder if we are working within democracies in name only, where we don't consider our causes because we assume someone else higher up is doing it for us. Verse 6, Mosiah clarifies he to whom the kingdom doth rightly belong has declined he will not take upon him the kingdom he seems to be referring to aaron there and so if it rightly belongs to him perhaps he is the oldest or is it simply rightly belongs to him because that's what the people want and king mosiah is beginning to honor that already either way it's not going to work and in verse 7 if someone else should be appointed in his stead i fear there would rise contentions among you it's interesting that in elections today The candidates themselves, including the losing one, they seem to accept the results of the people's decision more gracefully than the people do themselves. King Mosiah is first concerned about contentions among the people. Then he adds, and who knoweth but what my son to whom the kingdom doth belong should turn to be angry and draw away a part of this people after him, which would also cause wars and contentions among you. Now, Mosiah had already been assured that his sons would inherit eternal life. This doesn't seem like it's going to be a problem for Aaron. But would the same hold true generation after generation after generation? Perhaps the locals there in Zarahemla were beginning to take good kings for granted, since three uninterrupted generations had passed with incredible servant kings. Of course, the people of Limhi and the people of Alma that had consolidated with them back in Mosiah 25, they would certainly know better. And sure enough, later in Nephite history, when the king men come onto the scene, there are those that draw away a part of the people. In fact, we don't even have to wait for the king men. Wait for in two chapters from now. Either way, we've got to think through these kinds of possibilities. In verse eight, he reiterates what he said back in verse five. Let us be wise and consider these things. We have no right to destroy my son. We don't have right to have it destroy anybody else. We certainly don't want to end up destroying each other over these kinds of things. Wisdom must prevail. Consider the things. Not only consider our decisions, but consider the possible consequences, especially the unintended ones. Of the decisions that we're trying to reach together i do find it interesting that mosiah would say you don't have a right to destroy my son would kingship end up destroying him it hadn't destroyed mosiah but could it have later in this chapter we'll see mosiah sharing things about kingship that probably came as a surprise to his people he gives us an insider view that i don't think any non-king would really have an understanding of so i wonder if there's this Admission in verse eight, this the potential for self-destruction when put into a position of such authority. We know the word so well from Doctrine and Covenants 121, when Joseph Smith, himself suffering under the unrighteous dominion of the political powers of the state of Missouri, says that we have learned by sad experience that it is the nature and disposition of almost all men. Yes, King Mosiah seems to be an exception to that almost all men rule, but was he ever tugged in that direction? Did he find himself having to constantly purify his motives as section 121 suggests we all need to? As soon as we get a little authority, as we suppose, it doesn't even have to be kingship. It can be a little authority. It can even be supposed authority. I'm sure every one of us can think of experiences that we've had, sad experiences, where someone without really any authority at all, but supposing they had a little, they began to exercise unrighteous dominion. It's the nature and disposition of almost any of us. If it isn't your nature and disposition, you probably weren't going after leadership positions to begin with. You don't want any authority, even a little, even supposed. I'm happy to follow. Let someone else lead. It's not my nature. It's not my disposition. But if it is, then you're going to have to wrestle with yourself you're going to have to purify your motives. You're going to have to seek, as section 121 encourages, gentleness, meekness, love unfeigned, persuasion, not dominion, leading, not lording over someone else, the authority that you suppose you have. To whatever degree King Mosiah or his father and grandfather before him struggled with whatever nature or disposition would have moved in that direction, they succeeded in putting off the natural man or the natural leader, which is one of its subsets. But will every leader be so successful? In verse nine, he worries. If my son should turn again to his pride and vain things, wouldn't he end up recalling the things he said? Wouldn't he claim the right to the kingdom? And wouldn't this cause him and also this people to commit much sin? Don't bring upon him or yourselves that kind of destruction. I keep going back to what Mosiah was promised by the Lord back in chapter 28. Your sons are assured of eternal life. What fascinates me here is that King Mosiah, having received the promise, is acting as if he hadn't received it at all. Talk about a great way to maintain humility, to stay vigilant, to not just assume, oh, I'm in, I'm good, then I can coast. The Lord talked about not letting your right hand know what your left hand has done. Well, this is a case of not letting your right hand know what the left hand has been promised. Later, we'll see Nephi in Helaman chapter 10 having received the sealing power, blank check from God, and yet he turns around and acts as if he doesn't have that power and humbly prays for God to exercise his power instead. Or 1 Nephi 15, when Nephi comes down the mountain, having seen in vision that his brethren would go off the deep end, Reject God and be rejected by Him. And yet what's He do? He immediately begins working with His brothers, Laman and Lemuel, hoping against hope that what he just learned from the Lord, pretty trustworthy source, right? Might be different. I don't know, there just seems to be an interesting examples in the scriptures of people receiving promises and then acting like they hadn't received them in powerful, profound ways. Trusting God's promises, of course, but not taking them for granted living as if it all depended on us, even when we've already received the assurances of God. In verse 10, for the third time, he's encouraging them to think about this. Let us be wise and look forward to these things. Do that which will make for the peace of this people, to be forward-looking enough that we understand consequence and can wisely act accordingly. And so in verse 11, King Mosiah presents his plan. I'll be your king the remainder of my days, but let us appoint judges to judge this people according to our law. This is the exact reverse of what happened in the book of Samuel in the Old Testament, where having lived through a period of judges, Israel keeps clamoring for a king so that they could be like all the other nations. Well, here the Nephites have had a king and they've had good ones, but Mosiah begins to nudge them in the direction of judges. And not just as some kind of change in nomenclature. We're not just shifting titles here. We're changing the basis of government. These judges will judge according to our law. But here's the new arrangement of affairs. We will appoint wise men to be judges that will judge the people according to the commandments of God. So far, still doesn't seem that different. We'll see the bigger differences in a moment. But twice we saw in verse 11, it's going to be according to our law that they judge. It's going to be according to the commandments of God that they judge. So these wise men aren't being asked to use their wisdom to invent new things. They're being asked to use their wisdom to apply to individual circumstances, the laws that they've already received, the commandments that God has already given. Now, of course, verse 12, ideally God would be our judge. His judgments are always just. The judgments of man aren't always just. Wouldn't it be nice if God just came and ruled himself? Well, look forward to the millennium, right? Why would God delegate then? In the meantime, perhaps because he's trying to raise the ruler as well. The leader has a few things to learn. Even as we struggle sometimes with one another as clinical material, as Elder Maxwell used to say, perhaps the Lord is trying to School all of his subjects, leaders and followers alike, especially as we see in the church and even in the government, where we often switch back and forth between those two roles. We all have some learning to do, some wisdom to gain, and thus the Lord delegates leadership. Now, if we can't have the ultimate ideal, God judging us directly, then in verse 13, next best thing, just men to be our kings. They would establish the laws of God. They would judge this people according to his commandments. If you could have kings like my dad, King Benjamin, or in verse 14, even myself, people who labor with all the power and faculties which they possess, then kingship is a great option. In some ways, (laughs) verse 13 suggests that a righteous monarchy beats even a righteous democracy because there's greater efficiency. One person's in charge and they're just saying how it's supposed to be. Unfortunately, with that greater efficiency, there is so much greater risk because all the is in one hand and with nature and disposition being what they are, the risk that that efficiency will work in negative directions is real. Again, there's a large subgroup within his population that knows that incredibly well, having been the former subjects of King Noah back in the land of Nephi. If you jump ahead to verse 17, that's what King Mosiah describes. How much iniquity doth one wicked king cause to be committed? What great destruction. Don't you remember King Noah? Of course you do. His wickedness and his abominations, the wickedness abominations of his people, that brought destruction. It brought bondage. In fact, you'd still be dealing with that destruction and bondage if it weren't for the interposition of your all-wise creator. There's wisdom for you, there's all wisdom. He's asking us to be wise and consider how can we organize things beneath that omniscience with wisdom down here below. Without the people's sincere repentance, without God's all wisdom, you'd still be in bondage until now. But God did deliver you because you humbled yourselves before him. You cried mightily unto him and he delivered you out of bondage. That's the way the Lord works. He works with his power in all cases among the children of men. He extends the arm of mercy towards them that put their trust in him. But is there a better way, a better way to organize ourselves so that we don't have to put God into that position of bailing us out of our self-inflicted bondage all because we ended up being led by a wicked and selfish king? There's no way out of that other than an all-wise creator. There's no way out of that other than repentance and humility. Or as he says in 21, there's no way out of that except much contention and the shedding of much blood. That's the only way you can dethrone an iniquitous king. Why? Because in 22, he has friends in iniquity. He has guards about him. He tears up the laws of God and he tramples them under his feet. And then in 23, enacts new laws in their place after the manner of his own wickedness. If you don't obey those, he destroys you. That's how an unrighteous king perverts the ways of all righteousness. And you know it because you experienced it. Compare the other possibility back in 13 and 14 and 15. King Benjamin, King Mosiah, he says of himself, I've labored with all the power and faculties which I have possessed. Not just to establish peace in the land. Yes, he says that next, right? To establish peace throughout the land. No wars, no contentions, no stealing, no plundering, no murdering. Because whenever it happened verse 15 i punished according to the crime which the person committed i did it according to the law which was handed down by our fathers but that's not all mosiah was using his leadership and authority for yes he wanted to establish peace but first and foremost at the beginning of 14 i labored with all the power and faculties which i possessed to teach you the commandments of god that way you could establish peace yourselves that way you would police yourselves and keep yourselves from contention and stealing and plundering and everything else. What did Joseph Smith say? How do you govern a large people? I teach them correct principles and let them govern themselves. How does the Lord govern his kingdom? Same way, he teaches. This teacher come from God, not this king enforcing his standard upon people. I love that that is the focus of King Mosiah and what would need to be the focus for all of us, to teach people who can govern themselves. It's like the mission of John the Baptist, where it says he was meant to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. How? By crying repentance and baptizing people for the remission of their sins, to create new creatures. Isn't that what King Benjamin was after? Isn't that what Alma, was, the elder, was after? Changed hearts? changed lives working from the inside out to teach you and then you can govern yourself so in verse 25 after having laid out the two possibilities righteous kings mosiah and benjamin as exhibits a and b king noah as exhibit a of a wicked king let's not go with either one instead of kings choose you by the voice of this people judges that you may be judged according to the laws which have been given you by our fathers, which are correct, we've got a good foundation in place, which were given them by the hand of the Lord. That's the closest thing we can come to. Verse 12, God judging us. Verse 13, just men leading us. Well, if the laws originally come from God and are then interpreted and applied by wise judges, then for all intents and purposes, the Lord still is our King. We've been taught those things, we now govern ourselves. In a way we become our own king, a solitary sovereign with a constituency of one. Do we trust ourselves in that leadership role? Now this is the real new arrangement, not just judges instead of kings, but choosing by the voice of the people instead of simply receiving the fiat from the person in charge. Verse 26, it is not common that the voice of the people desireth anything contrary to that which is right the majority tend to be trustworthy. However, it is common for the lesser part of the people to desire that which is not right. So do your business by the voice of the people. There is risk there, of course, majority versus minority and so on. But there's less risk than that, than there is risk of having an unrighteous king. In 27, if the time comes that the voice of the people does choose iniquity, well, then that's the time the judgments of God will come upon you nothing less than that seems to overthrow societal wickedness, just like nothing less than political insurrection seems to solve the problem of an iniquitous king. Again, showing his own wisdom and considering the cause and future consequences or possibilities of things. In 28 and 29, he establishes a certain system of checks and balances whereby the mistakes made by a lesser judge can be appealed to a greater judge, a higher judge. And vice versa. If a higher judge doesn't judge righteously, then a group, a council of lower judges can judge the higher judge. All of this will be according to the voice of the people. Now, verse 30 confuses me a little bit. He says, I command you to do these things in the fear of the Lord. It's like, I want you to govern yourselves. And this is how I'm commanding you to do it. I don't know if he's commanding the outcome Or if he's simply commanding them to consider these things, to consider this cause, to be wise in these deliberations and to really understand where he's coming from and consider accordingly. Then again, his next phrase, I command you to do these things and that ye have no king. So maybe he really is commanding them that this is how we're going to change things. But again, he still is king right now. He's going to remain so until the end of his day. So he has the authority to change it. He can do what he wants. It's just interesting that what he wants is in the best interest of the people. This is so much like George Washington, who after two terms in the presidency, establishes this beautiful precedent, only broken once and then corrected by a later constitutional amendment, that after two terms, I will peacefully and selflessly step away. Go back to Mount Vernon. Other monarchs of the period and every other nation had one, were shocked by this, this voluntary abdication of authority, this laying down of the scepter and just going home from sovereign to citizen, just like that. King Mosiah is essentially establishing that precedent as well. As king, I am determining that there will be no more kings. I'm naming my successor after all, but my successor is all of you. I hope I've taught you sufficiently for you to govern yourselves. Because if I have, then at the end of 30, if these people commit sins and iniquities, they shall be answered upon their own heads. It's on you. Otherwise, the sin is upon the head of the king. Now we might consider that, oh, that's normal. That's just right? We can chalk up the people's wickedness to the wickedness of King Noah. He's already walked you through that. But in 31, the sins of many people have been caused by the iniquities of their kings. So the iniquities are answered upon the heads of their kings. That's only just, or is it? He considers that an inequality in verse 32. I desire that this inequality should be no more in this land, especially among this, my people. I want this land to be a land of liberty. I want every man to enjoy his rights and privileges alike. What an interesting shift of perspective. It's not just that he wants equality for the sake of the people. He wants equality for the sake of the king. Who wants that kind of responsibility? That your iniquities are on my head? I I feel Mosiah's pain here. I hate having to decide for an entire group. Even when I go on dates with my wife, I never want to choose where we're going to go. I just don't want that kind of responsibility. I'm easygoing enough that, hey, you choose and it'll be great. My wife usually knows that on date night, it's her call. I sometimes scratch my head when people tend to accuse the First Presidency in the Quorum of the Twelve of unrighteous dominion. And I just think, they didn't ask for these positions. I certainly wouldn't want one. To be in a position where people are expecting you to say, thus saith the Lord, and deciding things for everybody. Talk about an inequality in the land. Talk about a cop-out on our part, whether ecclesiastically or politically, just thinking, oh, that's somebody else's job to make those decisions for me. And I'll sit back and complain when I don't like what they're doing, but I won't be wise and consider causes myself. Reminds me of what Brigham Young famously said. We don't want you to simply kind of roll over and accept our decisions and authority. Even as apostles and prophets, you have to gain personal testimonies that we're moving in the right direction, just like we do. It reminds me of Wilford Woodruff when he announces the manifesto ending plural marriage. And instead of just saying, take my word for it, he says, you go and you ask God the same question I did. And I have so much confidence in your ability to receive an independent witness that I'll leave it between you and him. Isn't that what missionaries do with investigators? Don't take my word for it. Pray. I'll leave you and the Lord to discuss these things. There needs to be an equality in the land. I don't want to take responsibility for anyone else's decisions, wicked or righteous. Stand on your own two feet. Consider these causes. Enjoy your rights and your privileges alike. Notice this equality seems to be one of responsibility, not of rights alone. You see in 33 and 34, when Mosiah begins to kind of pull back the curtain into the throne room and see, this is what it really feels like to be a king. Heavy hangs the head that wears the crown, right? He unfolds unto them all the trials and troubles of a righteous king. All the travails of soul for their people, all the murmurings of the people to their king. He explained the whole thing. Remember, this is Mosiah that way back earlier on in the book, before we see the flashbacks of the people that went back to the land of Nephi, that first group, why did King Mosiah send Ammon back on this reconnaissance mission to see what happened to that group that left two generations earlier? Because the people had wearied him with their teasings. Remember that? He does all the murmurings of people to their king for good things or bad things or anything in between. Those are just part of the trials and troubles and travails of soul that I feel for you. It's like what the Lord says to Joseph Smith, his tears for Zion I have known. That weight of responsibility I always joke when I meet a bishop or a stake president who's just been released and I say, wow, you look taller than the last time I saw you. We talk about leaders bearing the mantle and I don't know if we often recognize just how much that mantle weighs. King Mosiah does. He's been bowed down by it as his father was before him. And so he says in 34, these things ought not to be. The burden the burden of leadership, the burden of governance should come upon all the people that every man might bear his part. There is a burden of democracy. There is a responsibility in self-governance, not just rights, rights, rights alone. We sadly sometimes make democracy into a freedom from other people's authority, outside constraints, a freedom from having to listen to anybody else. Well, what about a freedom to Self-govern. A freedom to bear the consequences of your own choice. The freedom to answer for your own sins instead of wash our hands of it. Talk about an interesting reversal. Pilate washed his hands and said, let's put the blame on the people. And yet most of us do it in reverse order. The people washing our hands saying, let the responsibility be upon Pilate or somebody else. Remember that phrase in D&C 109 when Joseph was dedicating the Kirtland Temple, that they may grow up in thee and receive a fullness of the Holy Ghost? To me, Mosiah 29 is less about politics or government systems in ancient America and much more about us growing up in God. Am I wise enough to judge myself, just enough to govern myself, grown up in God to the point that I will bear the burden for my own choices. That's agency. Not just the agency to enjoy my rights and my privileges, but the agency to bear responsibility for the consequences of my choice. That's growing up in God. In 35 and 36, he just reiterates one last time. It's like, can I give you another closing argument just in case you're wavering on this? I, I think you're beginning to be persuaded but one last chance to remind you of the disadvantages you labor under whenever you have an unrighteous king. He gives a pretty good list of those disadvantages in 36. Iniquities, abominations, wars, contentions, bloodshed, stealing, plundering, whoredoms, all manner of iniquities. They can't even be enumerated. Remember his dad had said something along those lines? I can't tell you all the ways you can sin. Well, here his son is trying to get the list going pretty well. These things ought not to be. They are expressly repugnant to the commandments of God. And by the end of that catalog of crimes and iniquities, the people are convinced. Verse 37, they were convinced of the truth of his words. I hope we are also. So in 38, they relinquished their desires for a king and not just gave up the old thought, they became exceedingly anxious. They were excited about the new one. They were sold on this for good reason. They wanted every man to have an equal chance throughout all the land. Every man expressed a willingness to answer for his own sins. Do you see how those are tied together in that same verse? It's not just, yes, I can have my rights. It's, I can have my responsibilities. It's not just about yay choice. It's about yay consequence. Fully understanding what they're getting themselves into. No wonder it took some explanation and reiteration, and persuasion on the part of their king. The ball is going to be in their court and they will bear responsibility for how well they play. By the way, has this started to sound like the war in heaven? I hope so. We'll see that several times in these chapters today. One plan presented with rights and responsibilities. Agency to the full, which not only includes choice, but includes consequences. People answering for their own mistakes. And of course, Jesus willing to answer for all of them on the conditions of our repentance. Meanwhile, another plan presented, no agency, which doesn't necessarily require the no choices that we sometimes envision, but rather the no consequences of those choices. You can do anything you want nobody has to bear the burden of their own sin well mosiah's people like god's children in premortality cast in their voices in verse 39 they go with their political father's plan and decide who should be their judges to judge them according to the law which had been given them so at the very foundation of all of this is still the law that had been given them from god through prophets. That was still the the foundation layer. But they are now deciding to take personal responsibility for how they would live those laws and exercising wisdom in deciding on the judges that would help interpret them. And they are exceedingly rejoiced because of the liberty which had been granted unto them, the liberty to face the consequences of their decisions. Verse 40, they waxed strong in love towards Mosiah, this wonderful servant leader who they esteemed more than any other man. Not because he demanded their admiration, but simply because the way he lived his life commanded their respect. He wasn't a tyrant seeking gain. He wasn't a despot seeking the lucre which corrupted the soul. He didn't exact riches of them. He established peace. He delivered them from bondage and they esteemed him beyond measure. Among those judges whom they appointed to rule over them in 41 was Alma in 42. Alma the Younger, the first chief judge. Also, simultaneously, their high priest, since his father had already conferred the office upon him and given him charge concerning all the affairs of the church. Good choice, by the way, since in 43 we learn that Alma the Younger did walk in the ways of the Lord, did keep his commandments, did judge righteous judgments, such that there was continual peace throughout the land. This is the end of an era. Thus commenced the reign of the judges throughout all the land of Zarahemla. They'll even restart their calendar based on this change, the time we became men and put away childish things, to borrow Paul's language. Maybe that's one reason that this comes after all the incredible work that King Benjamin did, Mosiah his son did, Alma did, to create new creatures, to help people be born of God and become his sons and his daughters so they would be ready for this bloodless revolution. Well, not quite bloodless, since it was their trust in the blood of the Lamb that was the only thing that gave them the courage to overcome that risk of taking responsibility for their own sins. Well, that prior generation of leaders, having prepared the people for this passage, having taught them correct principles, and now ready to pass the baton on, they passed away. Alma the elder dies at age 82. Mosiah the second dies at age 63. Five hundred and nine years have passed since Lehi left Jerusalem. His descendants seem to be doing well, but thus ended the reign of the kings over the people of Nephi, and thus ended the days of Alma, who was the founder of their church. From this moment on, People will do a lot more judging themselves and we'll see how well they do. The tests of that are not long in coming.